0: We're on Team Human where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today is Michael White, yes, the guy from AdBusters who sent out that first email instructing us to have our own Tahrir Square moment,
1: Occupy Wall Street. Although we were modeling this this ideal society, I think that we still failed to realize that if you really want a revolution, then you have to be willing to take power, hold power, and govern.
0: Micah learned a lot from what worked and what did not work about Occupy. And he came away with a pretty radical understanding of what makes change. He'll share with us his vision for a total revolution, or what he calls the end of protest. So a couple of years ago I wrote a book called Present Shock and most people got the basic idea of what it's like to live in this always on state of perpetual emergency interruption you know where your cell phone is pinging you with uh, updates or tweets or text messages from somebody you know so consistently that we live in a a state of of uh, emergency and disruption that used to be endured only by 911 operators or air traffic controllers you know we understand that and we usually think of it as a as a negative thing and i mean in some ways in some ways it is right we can't watch a house of cards anymore because we're all in different time sequences there's no sort of collective narrative that we go through as a group. It's just, oh, I'm on season three, episode two, and he's on season four, episode seven. We're all walking spoilers, living in our, our individual media silos, you know, afraid to destroy anybody else's. But this this new relationship to narrative, to stories, to the big old-fashioned Aristotelian, you know, eyes on the prize a story with a beginning, middle, and an end, it really has been disrupted by the remote control, the joystick, the mouse, the rewind button, the pause. You know, our ability to manipulate story, to move back and forth through it, to cut and paste, the digital media environment that we're living in is really not friendly to the traditional narrative. And while on the one hand it means that we, uh, well, we lose touch, we lose our love for a certain kind of story, you know, it's hard to get a lot of people into a movie theater anymore because that three act structure of the traditional motion picture screenplay has gotten so predictable. But on the other hand, it also makes us immune to the more uh, coercive premise behind a lot of stories, whether it's the 30-second advertisement where everyone's problem has to get solved by a product by the 24th or 25th second of the ad, you know, the crisis climax relief, or the the more propagandistic use of story, oh, we're going to go there to this enemy place and we're going to beat them in the war and then get victory, or the religious use of narrative. Oh, it's okay. This life is going to be hard, but then we're all gonna uh, we're all gonna get saved, and they're all gonna get damned. You know, these eyes on the prize, ends justifies the means, journeys, really typify twentieth-century movements and activity. You know, whether it's a great one where we're marching with Martin Luther King to reach the civil rights. Or an evil one, where we 're marching behind Hitler or Stalin to promote uh, some agenda and get to some great, glorious utopian end, you know the fact that we 're disillusioned with that and and uh, incapable. Uh, at least most of us, of being moved by that, is really positive. But it makes it hard to get people to rally for anything. You know, gone are the days when Kennedy can say, we're going to land a man on the moon by the end of the decade and return him safely to Earth. Because, you know, then you go to the moon, you stick the flag in there, and it happened. We did it. It's done. You, know, how, do you how do you rally that kind of energy and, and national support and unity Around problems that really don't have conclusions but are bizarrely never ending and, and Almost uh, systemic or chronic, you know. Uh, terrorism is not a war that you win. Hunger is not a war that you just go win. The the environmental sustainability is not a war that you win, but is more of a chronic battle. It's an awareness. It's an ongoing sensibility. It's like uh, uh, you know you don't win. At life in that way you don 't win at child rearing you don 't win at community. These are ongoing things, and they 're much less like uh, uh, football games or 20th century sports with uh, uh, two sides that fight against each other, and then the winner declares victory and ends the game they 're much more like fantasy role playing games if you remember those you know games like Dungeons and Dragons, where you sit around a table. And the object of the game is not to win in order to end the game. The object of the game is to see how long can we keep this game going? How creative can we be? What kinds of plot twists can we develop? And those games can go on for years. And that's the joy of it. You know, and I think that they are much more consonant and appropriate for a world in which... We're looking not for how to end it, but how to sustain it. You know, we know how to end it. We could get to the end of this in any number of uh, awful ways. But the real challenge is how do we keep it going? Now, and that's why I'm I'm fascinated by the way movements themselves have shifted, the way protest has shifted from we are all rallying to get this thing to protest as almost a state of being, to protest as a way of modeling a kind of behavior. You know, I felt that in the Occupy movement, what what the mainstream media and, and, and the mainstream America really didn't seem to understand about that movement was that in some sense, the fact that it didn't have a particular endpoint was not a weakness, but a strength. That this was a, a kind of an open-ended movement. And while we'll see, you know, there were demands, and it even started with the idea of one demand, it ended up becoming much more of a open-source type revolution, one where achieving consensus and coming up with new models for achieving consensus, new ways of approaching uh, the economy and community building and solidarity were as important as any of the content Itself, You know, what the kids and people in Zuccotti Park and around the world were modeling through their activity was almost more important than the content of what they were trying to say through that activity. You know, innovations such as the People's Mic, where people start to repeat each other uh, what the uh, uh, speaker is saying, or the General Assembly, which was a, a very non-parliamentary, very non-debate-oriented approach towards uh, reaching group consensus and, and dealing with issues, they were themselves uh, prototyping new forms of democracy and protest and movement making that were, uh, to me, as important as fighting Wall Street and looking at money and looking at the relationship of money to politics and the, the uh, amplification of the role of capital over that of labor and land and all of the various issues that were being, that were being addressed. The question is whether we're ready for this sort of political activity. You know, Can we move from the revolution of the book with a beginning, a middle, and an end to a revolution of the net, which is more about connectivity and continuance and sustainability, a, an open-ended participation by many and are these movements extremely local the way they feel are because they're so ground based or is there a, a one movement is there a new kind of universal suffrage are we connected in our revolutionary activity these are questions that we're that we're all going to have to be asking and answering over over the next few years but most importantly i think that the landscape for protest has changed that the the agonistic model the competitive model the combative model of protest is changing and moving beyond that framework is itself the greatest disobedience you know that's the thing they don't expect we're used to going to a go to a monument and sit down you know the the teachers of, of CUNY, where I teach, you know, the City University of New York, we're protesting against having no contract. And we know how to get arrested, how to put our little hands out and get the little plastic, you know, thing put around it and get put in jail. This is planned. You know, the the, the you make the appointment to go and get arrested and stay within those lines. You know, moving outside those lines may not look like violence, or at least not physical violence. It's violence to underlying assumptions. It's violence to the nature of protest itself. It's changing the expectations around what it means to protest what we're doing. So rather than protesting through the channels that have been laid for us, through the patterns that have been already worn out by our predecessors, it's breaking new ground. And doing that might augur the end of protest as we know it, but bring on the beginning of a whole new kind of revolution. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College and online at teamhuman.fm. Joining Team Human today is Micah White. He's an author, an activist, and a social movement builder. Micah was the editor at AdBuster for a number of years, and he and Callie Lan, the founder of AdBusters, uh, innovated a whole bunch of different new protest strategies trying to wake people up to the way that, uh, well, the way that corporations and money have invaded government and, kind of ruined a lot of our lives and certainly hurt the landscape on which we're trying to live. And the most successful of those movements was Occupy Wall Street, which began as a single little email that Micah sent to a bunch of people, and then it ended up, uh, well, becoming a global movement that changed the way a lot of us see uh, the disparity of income and wealth between the rich and the poor. And it also inspired a number of other movements from you know Occupy Debt to the Rolling Jubilee, and inspired him to write a book called The End of Protest, which really looks not just at his experience with Occupy, but at the the successes and failures of that movement and what that tells us about the way movement making has changed. So, Michael White, thank you for joining Team Human.
1: Thank you for having me on, Douglas.
0: So I'm pretty sure we started interacting back when you were at Adbusters. and I was an editor-at-large for the magazine, trying to figure out Know, exactly how to participate in what was going on. I was really, you know, of course, you know, happy about the way the magazine helped people deconstruct advertising, especially young people, to see how ads worked. And you know, you put tombstones on the Marlboro country, and people realize, oh, we can subvert this stuff. We can, you know, flip it. But when would ad busters transform from just cultural critique, from deconstruction, into construction of something new? Mm. You know, how would it actually build rather than just you know, just critique and tear down, and then when that email came, that email that came that said, uh, uh, "You know, our one demand," and calling on us to occupy Wall Street, and it's funny that that call. I remember our one demand. I don't even remember what that one demand was. All Mm. I really remember was CNN and CNBC and everybody, you know, at Zuccotti Park trying to find out what does everybody want and nobody really able to articulate a single bite-sized television-friendly demand. So when you sent out the email, the call to action, was there one demand or was that meant almost in jest, you know, that all our demands are kind of aggregate into one sum total demand?
1: Um, It was meant, in all honesty, totally seriously. I think that if you go back and you read that that original tactical briefing that we sent out, you know, the argument was basically that, on the one hand, we're witnessing a transformation in the the nature of tactics. We're seeing the birth of these kind of swarm-like movements. And then, on the other hand, the tactical briefing argued, you know, the reason why they overthrew Mubarak in the Tucker uprising is because they had one demand, which was Mubarak must go. And so that's where the core idea of, you know, at the top of the post says, what is our one demand? The core idea was if only Americans could come up with one crystal clear demand and go onto Wall Street and make that demand, then they would succeed. I think that and in the tactical briefing, we actually put forward an, an argument as to what that one demand should be. We said that the one demand should be that uh, President Obama appoints a, a presidential commission to get money out of politics. And, you know, we can talk about why did one demand not happen and would it have been more effective to have one demand? I think that it's a complicated question. I actually honestly think that not that even if we had had one demand, it wouldn't have succeeded because of other structural <laughs> failings within contemporary activism. But, you know, it was it kind of it did it completely framed the movement. And I think a lot of the movement debate did become around what is our one demand? Should we have one demand? Can we have one demand This kind of stuff?
0: right cuz in a sense at least occupy was both a movement and a meta movement in a way it wasn't just a, you know a performative movement as if oh we want to show the president and wall street what we're doing and we're going to sit here until we get the change we want you know it was more the experience of being part of a movement and almost prototyping some other kind of movement structure
1: right no i think that's that's absolutely right and i think that's really an intelligent way of looking at Occupy. I mean, basically what you know, what Occupy was, and I think what gave Occupy its strength and what makes Occupy kind of a superior movement versus things like Black Lives Matter, which is still an important movement, but what made Occupy special and even more special, I think, than Black Lives Matter, is that at the one hand, it tapped into the global struggle that was going on. So people were rising up in, in Wall Street, but they're also rising up in the Arab Spring, also in Spain, and it was all part of the same struggle. And then it also, at the same time, put forward a new argument for how society should be structured. And that, I think, was the core thing that was going on, is that we had these general assemblies. And there was this, this kind of magical thinking that we had that, that we were manifesting a more pure and better form of democracy. And that somehow these general assemblies—I mean, I think now that I'm learning more about the Russian Revolution, I think what we were really acting out was this: this the Soviets. We were We were imagining that somehow these general assemblies could become— the governing force somehow of this new movement, this new way of being and this new kind of um, situation. So I think that Occupy, it it was a movement but it wasn't purely performative and that's what made it revolutionary. I think for a brief moment we actually thought like, wow, we're gonna set up all these assemblies all over the world and then all of a sudden somehow power is going to fall into our hands and we're gonna have real democracy, real people's democracy. I know, it
0: did feel like the movement was modeling a new normative behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, I wrote this piece from CNN where I was trying to explain that, well, if you think Occupy is failing, you don't get it. It's very existence, its way of functioning, its effort of trying to grope towards consensus in new ways and survive together and deal with the homeless who are feeding off the movement just for the food and the, the drum circles, you know, lest we, we don't talk about them. You know, working through all of that in some ways
1: it's almost a demonstration of how government could work or how community could work. That's right. It was a beautiful manifestation. I think that it in the end of the day, you know, I think that what kind of didn't allow people though, to make the next step is that although we were modeling this this ideal society, and that was kind of the argument of prefigurative anarchism, this idea that we're gonna um, model this society and we don't have to like fight with the other society that exists. You know, in the end of the day, though, I think that we kind of we still failed to realize that if you really want a revolution, then you have to be willing to take power, hold power and govern. And I don't think that Occupy or our General Assemblies, just be, just as we were unable to come up with our one demand, we were also unable to do the complex decision making processes that would have actually allowed these General Assemblies to be the... Um, microcosm of the new society we wanted to live in. In the end of the day, they ground into a kind of stalemate. Consensus-based decision-making wasn't complex enough for us to actually do what we were trying to set out to do. So it's it's both, I think in some ways it was, you know, like and sometimes we have to go through defeat in order to have success. And I think in some ways Occupy, it was the best thing about Occupy is that it taught us so much about what works and what doesn't work in protest movements, some of which I think has been forgotten. But I think that When we really internalize those lessons, the next time that we have a movement like Occupy, it's going to be so much more effective, so much more powerful.
0: Yeah, for me, it was very reminiscent of the early internet. You know, you could call the early internet a failure because we didn't get the shareware, the open source participatory democratic cyberspace that we were imagining. You know, we got this electronic strip mall instead. But the way the movement was going about things in this almost anti-narrative way, you know, in some ways... I remember being critiqued by it. I guess we could call them traditional activists, you know, people who marched with Martin Luther King or people who protested the Vietnam War, people who were involved in the later civil rights movement. They looked at Occupy not just as, as demandless, but as goalless. You know, the fact that it was groping toward almost a steady state permanent revolution you know to them that that it, it felt less like a book with a beginning a middle and an end than like the internet which is sort of this open series of connections this thing that unfolds rather than just completes
1: yeah i mean i think that's that is really true i think that the thing about occupy wall street and i think why why it suc- succeeded and why it grew so fast so quickly is because it came from unlikely sources. You know, when, when we tried to, when we told people, I remember when I told people about the idea for Occupy Wall Street before Occupy Wall Street, very, very, very few of them thought it was a good idea. They all thought it was a bad idea. And even, like, you know, to pull out someone like Michael Moore in specifics, you know, like Michael Moore, there was a campaign before the launch of Occupy Wall Street on Twitter. to, to We flooded him with thousands and thousands of tweets saying, Michael Moore, you have to support Occupy Wall Street, da-da-da-da you know, he didn't say a thing. (laughs) And so there's a kind of, but of course, after when it was a success, all of these people who ignored it, they rushed into it. You know, the only celebrity who really talked about Occupy Wall Street before it became a success was Lupe Fiasco. And so um, I think that it's the nature, what did that get to the nature of effective protest? Because an effective protest is always unrecognizable to the previous generation of protesters. Like we that's what's so so difficult about protests. Is it has to be a constantly innovating process. Whenever we repeat the behaviors that we've seen in the past, it's bound to failure. So whenever we act like doing a mass march or any of the papers that we that we think constitutes activism, then it's a failure. But when we create new tactics and new methods of fighting, then it's then it's a success. So it's. It's almost a mark of our of our success that this that the old style activists couldn't recognize themselves in our behaviors
0: because it meant something genuinely new had happened. You know, it's like I remember when Manuel de Landa and Paul Virilio were picking on Artmark, you know, who later became the Yes men, you know, saying this is not protest, this is not real, you know that it's just fake, that it's art, that it's something else. But it's like yeah, buddy, this really is protest. It's mm-hmm. just a different kind of protest. It's making people aware of things in in a completely new way. You know, it's as strange to our culture as the situationist must have been to theirs. In, in the end of protest in your book, you know, you talk about the end of protest, and in some ways you frame it as this bad thing, but in another way, you know, like these this kind of new generative work... Uh, It means that a new kind of of protest
1: gets to evolve. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think of the end of protests, you know, the end of protests is 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 a natural part of the social change cycle. What happens is that it seems that a new a new tactic will arise, whether it's the barricades in 1848 or the use of these Soviet um, assemblies during the Russian Revolution and it'll it'll surprise everyone it'll be wildly successful and then the, the society the status quo learns how to defeat it and it goes and then and then everything shifts into a period that i call the end of protests where there might be the continued use of barricades but they're no longer effective or there might be the continued use of soviets gathering or or consensus-based assemblies but they're no longer effective so on the one hand it's 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 the most difficult time to be an activist because you what you want to do is just you just want there to be social change. So you keep repeating the same behaviors and, and it just doesn't work. And it can be very demoralizing. But at the same time, it's also the best time to be an activist because because the end of protest always leads to another revolutionary outbreak, you know. And so it's and, and I think that the thing that, that the, the, the dangerous thing about the moment that we're in right now, though, is that the end of protest doesn't mean the absence of protest; It means the proliferation of ineffective protest. And we actually live in an era where protest has been, it's not just commodified, it's celebrated. Ineffective protest is celebrated. And so and so it can be very difficult to realize that, you know, we look out and we, every time we try to open the news, there's more and more protests. So it can be very difficult to realize that that we are living in a period where protest is ineffective because we're so confused by the pr- the proliferation of protests everywhere.
0: Yeah, sometimes I will watch TV and I'll get this weird feeling inside, this kind of cognitive dissonance, because I'll I'll see a protest, but I'll think, you know, something's wrong with this picture. I, I think you in the book you called it the eviction script, and I know it well because you know the teachers of CUNY, they, they were all supposed to be protesting that there hasn't been a contract in eight years, or going and doing you know sit-ins and yelling at things and, and the union has these classes and you know how to get arrested and and where to sit and you know how not to get hurt and how and telling you how long they're gonna make you stay in jail and all that, you know, and it's really just this weird, almost cooperative dance between the protesters and the police just to make sure that, you know, they're not gonna get in any trouble and that you're not gonna get hurt and that your lawyer comes at the right time. And it's like, if this is so orchestrated, is it
1: real anymore? You know, is, is that a protest? Right, it's it's not a protest, and what I think, I mean, it's it's this is something that's so complicated, complicated, and it's so important to, to parse out. But what's happened is that I think that the concept of protest has been separated away from the concept of revolution. I think that that most activist organizations and most activists have actually given up on the idea of a revolution and instead maintain protest as some sort of performative behavior that's done in order to to attract media attention and show and and, or to to spread a message or to or to inform people about something. And so if your goal is just simply to get into the news, well, then, yeah, it's probably best just to like to do a scripted event. But if your goal is to unleash an unpredictable process of social change and transformation, like during Occupy for a brief moment, you know, people really thought it was possible that Obama. Who knew? He could have been toppled. I mean, we didn't know what was going to happen. And so in that, I mean, that window very quickly closed, but still there was this moment when no one could predict what was going to happen, you know? And so I think that part of it's that 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 activists have given up on the idea that we could actually trigger some sort of revolutionary transformation where the people actually become the ones in power. And part of it, I think, is the growth of a protest industry that, quite frankly, profits from... They, they they want to profit from protests without having any of the risks of protest, of revolutionary protest. During Occupy, for example, people died. Well, they don't want anyone to die during their scripted events. And so it's a very it's a very sad I think I find it very sad as an activist because those 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 scripted events you know, they waste everyone's time and they take away the passion of the activists who could actually be building events like Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter and stuff like that.
0: Well, I mean, the question, though, is does it have to be all or nothing? You know, what if there's just some workers, you know, at a supermarket or a Walmart who just Mm -hmm. want to get their salary up from, you know, $2 to $3? You know, they can make noise, right? They stand in front, they get their pickets, they make noise to the point where Walmart or, whoever it is, or A&P or somebody, they'll they'll finally, they'll give them a little bit of money and they get to live slightly better lives. You know, they just want to get by. They're not looking to topple the whole system. That's all scary and strange.
1: Yeah, I know. It gets into this, this problem of do we even really want revolution anymore? Does the left even really exist? I think that there's, the sad thing that's happened is I think that the the kind of the perversions of communism under Stalinism and Mao and all of it you know and the Khmer Rouge, all of these these horrible tragedies of the 20th century have left us in the 21st century using the language of revolution while in our hearts being a little bit scared of what that would actually mean. Because all we can think of is the is the horrible the horrible downsides. And we have very little memory of the of the fact of the great freedom. You know, I think that only during movements like Occupy Wall Street did we taste that freedom of what a revolution actually means when you no longer are afraid, when you actually have hope and optimism about the future. It's kind of a spiritual experience and it suddenly becomes the 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 you know worth the risk. But now, you know, with the with the defeats of the revolution in the 20th century and now with what's going on in Egypt, with the repression and all this kind of stuff, we are back into that kind of counter-revolutionary mode where we think, well. Maybe reform is better than revolution. And then we just end up getting stuck, I think, in the same, um, you know, the same game where we nothing really improves, but at least we feel a little bit better kind of thing. So,
0: Well, if revolution means Chechen fighters and Hezbollah and ISIS, I mean, who wants that? Right. Now, you say in the book there's one revolution going on, that there is one protest but if there's one universal protest, does that mean when I'm part of occupy or whatever comes to follow occupy, does that mean I'm also part of Isis?
1: Right. And this and this is I think you I think you're hitting it right on on the head here, which is like really what I think is going on is that the is that the language and the concepts of revolution which used to be the domain of basically secular Europeans, Marxist Europeans who rejected religion, who were on the side of the industrial workers it seems like this is these dreams are actually being taken over now by religious fanatics and jihadists who are, you know, you know like when we talk about, you know, um, they would talk about world revolution. Marx and Lenin would talk about world revolution. Well, the people who are really preaching world revolution right now are, are the Islamic State. And so I think that that is part of what's going on, where we have almost given up on revolution, and the people who are starting to believe in revolution actually kind of terrify us. But I think that the way to fight back against that is to, is to revive the dream of revolution. You know, like, we are going to have some sort of world social movement that wins elections or, or overthrows governments worldwide. And if you don't want it to be ISIS, then you have to build the alternative. You have to build a social movement that can actually fight a social movement. Only a social movement can defeat a social movement is one thing I think about. So the only way to, to really defeat ISIS would be to, to create another social movement that can, that can eclipse them. Right. Like when they
0: send the docile bees to mate with the killer bees. So they change internally. <laughs> you know, in other words, rather than fighting them from above as a new repressive regime, we become a competitor for revolutionary fervor. So right. that people would join our positive revolution rather than their
1: negative killing one. Right. And that's extremely difficult to do because you can't, it can't be fake. You can't actually, you can't, when you when you unleash a social movement that's revolutionary, then it always comes back to the place that was unleashed. I mean, so it some people argue that America really helped inspire the Tahrir uprising. Well, if true, America got its own revolutionary moment back with the Occupy. And so I think that what the challenge for the left or the West or whatever right now is to imagine a revolutionary strategy that doesn't rely on terrorism and violence and, and all of these like uberly uberly destructive and gross behaviors that we're seeing in the Islamic state. But at the same time does still dream big that dreams about, um, you know, a truly egalitarian world where everyone has enough to eat all of these old dreams of the left, you know, like uh, utopian dreams, like they, they need to be realized. And so it, it is a kind of, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a bold task, but I think it's really crucial. It's the only thing that can really save us. Otherwise we're just giving, the revolutionary momentum is going to just pass over to the to the very forces that we fear. Well, I mean, and the other problem you point out in the book, the revolution is against something
0: that we've internalized, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not just the 0.1%, but those values, those values have been, it's part of our society. You know, am I going to have a revolution against the shopping mall, against Taylor Swift, mm-hmm. you know, against mm-hmm. the things that I, and it's funny, you talked about about a moment that was really pivotal in my life. In the book you talked about the Advertising Association of America, whatever it's called, the four A's, and how in 1994 Procter & Gamble went there to the convention and I was there, you know and how they talked about how the internet was going to become a problem if the internet didn't become an advertising based medium, sort of Google style AdSense, you know, click on this if it becomes either a pay for service like HBO or something worse like like educational or cultural, then we advertise advertisers the industry is going to lose control of reality you know that's what they said you know the odd thing is that i was there i had just published this book media virus and i went there and they were already talking about what they were calling viral marketing now media virus is a book about revolution it's a book about the idea that now cultural agendas are going to be expressed involuntarily by the mainstream media because of all these bottom up systemic viral properties and what they were already looking at how to do is how do we imitate that viral nature with ad campaigns?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But that moment that you talk about was really the moment they realized that there's this new, and they don't call it this, of course, because it hadn't happened yet, but but this new lateral, you know, Occupy-like infinite non-narrative interactive media networks that are emerging and we're going to have to somehow co-opt this whole space or they're going to get away from us. Mm-hmm. Do you think they did? You know, and if they did, how do we defeat an enemy that has migrated into our heads, into our sinews, in the in the connective fiber of our culture?
1: Right, right. No, I think I think you're absolutely right and I think that is that is the greatest challenge and it's the greatest battlefront because whereas the left emphasized, it used to emphasize a kind of secular materialism that emphasized the economic forces within society and and based its revolutionary strategy around these kind of material, you know, forces. It seems like what's really keeping us enslaved now is this culture industry that not only constrains the information that we're, that we're given, but it also constrains our imaginations about what's possible. You know, like that seems to be the real problem is that we can't even imagine another way i mean i'm not the first person to meant to say that and it's and it has a lot to do with i think this the influence of culture and 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 advertising and entertainment and all this kind of stuff that like you know pollutes our minds and so this is why i think that the spiritual side of revolution is going to play a larger role as we go forward because it really is this question of well how do you how do you provoke epiphanies within people that 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 change their change the very way they see reality. You know, when they've been so immersed in this in this media environment, how do you break them out of that and suddenly have them see a new reality, see something that's newly possible and this kind of thing? So it it is I think the greater challenge is figuring out how to how to do that because we are, you know, I live in rural Oregon and I went to visit someone who their family, you know, a very poor family, and they had like three screens all watching, you know, You know Kim Kardashian and all this kind of stuff. So there, so we're every American is seeped in it from the bottom of the economic ladder to the top of the economic ladder. It's 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 terrifying in a way.
0: And the worse it gets, the less money you have, and the more pain you've got in your life, the more you want to get on Hulu or Netflix or anything. I mean, there's enough free media out there that you have somewhere to escape to, and that's scary, you
1: know? Yeah, we go. I mean, I think we're living in these illusions, and in a way. You know, Occupy and these kind of movements, they allow us briefly to dream another way, to occupy occupy a different kind of dream, you know, a shared dream that was beautiful, non-commercial, wasn't on television. But in the end, you know, the the social networks, they did the same effect, where we started to watch the movements on the social networks instead of enjoying them in the reality. And so it is a these screens that we have end up being so so counter-revolutionary in the end. So then what's the... What's the state of being or the mindset
0: that we should be groping towards? Is it just awareness of sustainability issues as we go through our day? Is it a posture of vigilance, of protest or self-denial? Do we sit and read books on the political economy? Do we open our awareness? Do we develop compassion? What are you seeing as the most practical, useful, possible sort of new modality of human consciousness?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's the fundamental question because what we're getting at is this The fundamental question of revolution today is basically how do you spark epiphanies how do you spark life-changing realizations in people and i think that a lot of the method or approach that has been that people have used up until now has been very much information based you know like there's so many books critiquing and telling us why things are wrong with with tons of information and statistics that ultimately doesn't seem to work it seems to be instead that what you need to do is unleash a kind of collective mood a new kind of collective mood that spreads throughout society—a contagious mood. Um, but I think so. On so on a kind of social level, it's about de- is about developing these abilities to spread emotions of fearlessness and and these other kind of things that wake people up. And I think, but on a personal level, you know, it 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 does have to do with a realization that there is something called our mental environment, and our mental environment can be polluted. It can be polluted by pornography. It can be polluted by advertising. It can be polluted by you know, reading garbage, basically, just like we don't allow ourselves to just eat garbage. We don't we don't we shouldn't allow ourselves to consume information garbage and media garbage. And so I think that on a personal level, it has to do with understanding of the mental environment and on a social level, it has to do with understanding how to developing an understanding of how to unleash these kind of collective moods.
0: Right. I mean, well, it's funny. You look at someone like Donald Trump and he seems to be on on some level, capitalizing on the very same energy a revolutionary would
1: want to capitalize on. That's right. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a kind, he's a kind of revolutionary. He's a kind of demagogue figure. But that's, that gets back to what we were talking about earlier, where it seems like the forces of revolution are shifting from left to right. And I think that is, has to do a lot with the, you know, it has to do a lot with the, with the death of the left. I think we've basically, the left is, it's, it's kind of dying. I think, that's the saddest thing about it: is the left has given up on revolution, and now all the revolutionaries are starting to be more and more right wing, more and more um, scary, <laughs> quite frankly. And I think that a revival of the of the revolutionary left, not the fake revolutionary left or the throw a brick at the bank revolutionary left, but the real revolutionary left that develops a strategy, a party strategy for how to take power, hold power, and increase the you know the goodness of the world is what's needed. It's very much consonant with the theme of
0: this podcast. The- whole idea of being on team human is that we recognize that there's both visible and invisible systems and operating systems that were designed by people some of whom are here and some of whom have long since left the building but are not serving human interests and that somehow for people if we can get in touch with our humanity and look at these systems from the perspective of you know are they optimized for people or are they optimized for something else and if they're optimized for something else You know, then then is that something we even care about? You know, that seems to be a way of eliciting some of these epiphanies. You know, Mm -hmm. so you, you look at something like money or central currency and you say, okay, what's the operating system here? Who does it serve? You know, is it helping people transacting as best they can in order to build an economy or is it just extracting value from people through its very existence? You know, and if people can can flip, it seems that this human awareness you know, is one avenue into that. I mean, are there certain touchstones that you found are good
1: epiphany contexts? Hmm. It's a really good question. I think, I mean, for me, I think that you are kind of alluding to one really important one, which is this question of the people. And, you know, our politics should be oriented around helping people, quite frankly. I think that that's, that's really what the revolutionary project is about, is that there are there's millions and billions of people suffering around the world. And so our politics should be oriented around solving those problems. And at the same time, there's these these global challenges that face us like climate change and these kind of things. And only the only way to solve those are with a global social movement. So I, I, I do think that it has to do with a kind of reorientation towards the human side of life and at the same time, a kind of orientation away from the materialist side, I, I I feel like what gave Occupy its power was its kind of um, spiritual experience that people had taking part in it. So it's kind of a combination of that, a kind of return to humanity, but also a a turn away from the overemphasis on secularism and materialism that has dominated the left. It's
0: interesting to hear revolution with spirituality, but I guess it's really always been there. I mean, whether you're looking at Martin Luther or Martin Luther King, and I think you're right that somehow isolating or alienating ourselves from that, you know, particularly in academia, you know, all the humanities, they're all, you know, if like, if you can't rationalize this thing, if you don't have scientific or sociological proof, then you can't even talk about the thing anymore. It's like, wait a minute, there's a sort of a, a soft and squishy human side and ineffable an aspect to experience, something that doesn't quite have a metric yet. And just because it doesn't have a metric, you know, doesn't mean it's not really there. You know, it's like once they have a metric for something, it's kind of dead. Mm-hmm. You know, when you don't have the number is when it's still strange and threatening and indescribable enough to push people out of their comfort zone
1: absolutely. And I think, you know that's one mark of of kind of effective activism is that it's immeasurable. I think a lot of the activism that, you know, I've critiqued clicktivism in the past and stuff like this, but a lot of it has to do with people stop listening to their instincts about what makes a good movement, and they start listening to their their metrics and their clicks and all this kind of stuff. And we've seen, because of the Snowden revelations, we've seen that that these metrics are being influenced by state security services. So, I I, I think that you're right that the that the emphasis needs to go back to this kind of. It's a sensation. I think that you know the best way to tell if you have a good idea for a campaign or, or or a movement is whether or not it makes you a little bit scared in your stomach. You know that's that's quite frankly what people need to start listening to is their guts when it comes to these movements because the idea for Occupy Wall Street was terrifying and it terrified people to say that we should sleep on the streets of Wall Street and all this kind of stuff or bring tent. People told us we shouldn't bring tent and all this kind of stuff. So I so you know it does have to do with this. kind of a reorientation in the way that we think about activism, the way that we choose the activism campaigns, and then also how we go about them. It's it's interesting.
0: And I guess in a way, as long as we can find that scary place, it's hopeful. You know, I've been saying a lot, we seem to be living in a world where it's easier for people to imagine a zombie apocalypse than imagine life 10 or 20 years from now. And that's both a really sad commentary, but in some ways a real important one. You know, if they can't visualize 20 years from now, maybe it means because things are
1: changing and that things are going to be different. Yeah. I, yeah. I, we are going through a period of of such systemic and dynamic social change. We're living through like, you know, from, from gay marriage to, you know, technological change. We're living through dramatic social change on all levels. So, yeah, I think it's time for people to basically dream big. I mean, we can achieve, <laughs> we could achieve amazing, amazing social transformations in our lifetime, and, and we're going to. But it has to do with stepping away from kind of, um, you know, the end of protest, reformist-based thinking about what's possible. It has to do with opening our imagination, getting away from the media storyline and all these kind of things. And, and then somewhere out there, I think, is a very beautiful kind of social awakening that is just waiting to happen.
0: Well, with that, I think I should thank you, Michael White, for joining Team Human and, you know, giving us, I think, the beginning of a, of a new playbook for fighting for humanity's interests against the various machines we've erected over the centuries to repress people and to repress us into something that we're not.
1: Thank you. It was a real pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Today's show was made possible thanks in part
1: to an underwriting donation provided by Zago, strategic design studio committed to positive social change. Our friends at Zago also designed our logo and helped me with the visual design and website. Special thanks to Fugazi and Mike Watt for sharing the music you heard on the show. I'm Stephen Bartolomé, and I'm on Team Human. And
0: I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peace.